Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and we have another brilliant Q&A with Dr. Mike Isratel from Renaissance Periodization. I don't know why I said Isratel, a bit weird. Um, say hi, Mike. What up, man? You said it just fine, man. My <laughs> last name is, funny enough, okay, so quick story. I was, I did a seminar in Israel, uh, which went super well. Um, returned to the homeland, so to speak, genetic homeland, not, uh, mm-hmm. not, I've never, I was not actually ever born there. Um, and, um, you know, so El Al, the airline, the Israeli national airline has like the best security screening in the world. Cause there's just really just zero bullshit. And they ask you questions to see if you'll crack, because if you have a fake story about why you're going or who you are, you will crack just from normal questions. So one of the first questions they asked me was they looked at my passport and they're like, how do you say your last name? And I had the fucking best zinger response ever. And after that, the questions got way easier because they were like, how do you say your last name? Because you know, it's a fake last name that designed to sound Jewish and I was a fucking terrorist or something. I'd be like, ah, fuck, fuck, fuck. Right. But I was like, um, I can say it either in its Russian pronunciation or its English pronunciation. Which one do you want? And they were like, whatever, get out of here and you go. <laughs> You're good, motherfucker. You know, <laughs> so that was pretty sweet. But, but in any case, um, yeah, but, you know, c- because it has two different pronunciations to begin with, uh, whenever people fuck it up, I'm like, look, I really even fucking up. Also, it's not phonetic. Like it, it's, it looks like Israel, but like you just get rid of that E sound altogether. And it's Israel. Like we could cut out a whole letter and it would sound better uh, than like what it actually does for English. So like, I don't know. Some people are really weird about people getting last names wrong. They're like, technically it's blah, blah, blah. Like with TSA agents try to say my last name. I'm like, whatever. Like your guess is as good as mine. I don't give a shit. Call me Mike. Call me that guy. I don't give a fuck. Yeah. I get people uh, rarely, but sometimes call me Stefan. Um, because Where? Like, the, the PH. Where? Oh my God. <laughs> so it's brilliant. I get enough people's names wrong. So I don't get upset by it. I just find it quite funny. <laughs> Yeah, awesome. So we were just talking off air. Uh, Mike was basically giving me a bit of a hand because I am kind of still fairly recent from my post comp uh, period. And I wanted to make sure I was getting kind of my volume landmarks in the right area. And so Mike said a load of stuff that was very, very beneficial to me. And I was like, I wish I was recording this because that sounded like a lot and I couldn't take it all in at once. So Mike said he'd repeat it and he thinks the the rest of the audience could benefit from this. And I completely agree. Um, And that is a sense of trying to find your minimum effective volume in a shorter period of time, maybe one mesocycle in length. And uh, Mike has some suggestions for that. Yeah. So a minimum effective volume is the least amount of volume from which you will benefit in, in, in this context, actually grow muscle. Um, it's not the same thing as maintenance volume, which is the amount of training it takes to just maintain your gains, right? Um, so those can be two diff- very different values, especially if you're more intermediate and advanced. For beginners, they're roughly the same. Um, and, and usually, so a device in the um, How Much Do I Train book about the volume landmarks that just came out, which, by the way, is getting really sweet reviews, um, you know, if I may say so myself. But um, so that book uh, says correctly that if you really want to figure out your minimum effective volume, it's something you have to do over multiple mesocycles, just like a real maximum recoverable volume. But you may be in a position where you just kind of want like just a broad strokes estimate and you only have one mesocycle to do it because you want to find your MEV for the next successive mesos so that you can crawl up from MEV to MRV and you don't just want to start at some arbitrary point, which could be anywhere. You want like this general MEV area. So this is a real, not precise method of how to do it. So before anybody criticized me, which you totally can, of like, yeah, but that's a really ballpark estimate. I know, I know. Um, But here's how you go about doing it. What you basically want to do is find the least amount of work in terms of sets per body part per week that is in any detectable way is seriously disruptive. That means it is altering the physiology and making the physiology do go through that emergency response of cascade that we know leads to growth. We have a couple of telltale signs of how to do that. I'm going to go through a couple of the signs. You need to integrate all of them into your analysis to make the analysis the most beneficial. One of the signs is how difficult was the week of workouts per body part 
from just a sense perspective, how disrupted do you feel? Right? You don't do 10 sets of 10 in the squat three times a week and be like, eh, whatever, right? You're like, fuck, if I have to do that again, I'll just straight up kill myself. This is no point in me doing it. Matter of fact, I'll just do that and it will kill me, right? But if you have like, you know, three sets of three, uh, three sets uh, of 10 and that happens three times a week, now that's just nine sets, you might look back on the week and people are like, so how was your week of squatting? You're like, eh. like I felt like it was a hit, you know, but if someone said, what about if you just did seven sets, how would you feel? And you're like, that just would just be a walk in the park. I mean, I could do that with my eyes closed as far as volume is concerned. Like it's just not just think of, uh, think of you seeing your own program doing it. And, and then someone's like, is that a lot of work? Or is that like meat and potatoes amount of work? Or is that like not enough to do shit? Whatever way you answer, that is going to help your guide, your MEV. So if it's one of those situations where like, well, mathematically, my MEV for biceps should be 20 sets per week, but you actually do the 20, you're like, oh my fucking God, that was just like destructive. Then clearly it's not your MEV. On the other hand, if you say, well, my MEV for biceps should be five sets per week, but you do the five sets per week for biceps and you're like, I could double that work and still not feel a thing. It's not your MEV. That might be your main maintenance volume, it might even be below your maintenance volume. So MEV is when you want to find that first volume, right? The minimum volume in which you're like, all right, we're working out, right? This feels like some volume. This feels like a challenge. This feels like work as opposed to even if the individual sets and reps feel heavy, you're just like me, like today, I actually did a, I'm on a mini cut right now. I did a minimum effective volume dose workout, which was um, it was a quad work. It was just one workout. So there's more sets during the week, but just a couple more. Um, and I did, uh, what was it? Four sets of squats, uh, relatively heavy. And then I did two sets of lunges. So six total sets. And can I tell it was the workout like hard? No, the weight was heavy, but the workout was like, all right, I'm working out, you know, it's training. Whereas like with maintenance volumes, like it would just be, three or four sets of squats and that's it like no lunges that would just be like okay clearly i'm just leaving the gym because i just said i had enough and I, I could just be here for like another double that you know what i mean by that steve mm -hmm. so it's one of those things like if it feels like a workout it probably is so you want the bottom level of what feels like a workout second thing is the workout giving you pumps okay is it giving you pumps if you're not getting any kind of pump at all, it's probably somewhere at maintenance volume level or in the gray zone between maintenance and minimum effective. If it gives you some kind of pretty decent pump, I'm not talking about splitting your chest open or some shit, then you're probably talking about minimum effective volume. And um, another one is, is it giving you delayed onset muscular soreness? Minimum effective volume for many of your body parts, though not all, should give you some delayed onset soreness at the very least, like the day after, like you should be able to tell you squatted or did lunges the day before. If you can't tell at all, that's probably maintenance volume. Like what kind of, what kind of workout could you possibly do? How do you expect to grow if you can't even tell you trained yesterday? Um, well, if you grow from not being able to tell you trained yesterday, fuck man, you just found a fatigue free way to grow. That's the fucking holy grail, right? So, you know, are you disrupted in the sense of, are you sore? Did you get a pump? Did the workout feel difficult? at the very minimum of what is considered difficult, right? Um, that's it. If you can check all three of those or most of them, you're probably dealing with something like your minimum effective volume. And, and remember, like for the folks listening to this, this shit is not fucking rocket science. Okay, if you go in and you barely catch a pump at all, you're not sore, the next day you can't even tell you trained, and somebody asks you like, how was your last week of training after doing all that volume? You're like, bro, I, I feel like I'm not even training. Can you really be at your minimum effective volume? No. And by the way, that works for beginners as well as it works for intermediates or advanced because beginners, if they do two sets a week of squats, they will get so sore. They're going to bleed out of their ass from just two sets. Right. And they're going to be super tight. And they're gonna be like, that was a lot of work compared to the zero I'm fucking used to doing. But if, so for, if you get a beginner, what's a beginners under their MEV? Well, like five reps in the squat and that's it. They go home. Like you're like, okay, here's, you know, like 50 kilos. They do five reps and they rack it. They're like, okay, I'm ready for the workout. You're like, good news. That is the workout. <laughs> they're like, okay, clearly something's mistaken here. We're like, well, you're not going to grow from this because you're under your minimum effective volume. So if you align all three of those, um, how you feel, uh, you know, is it, does it feel like uh, some good volume? Is it getting you pumps? Is it getting you sore at all, right? The minimum, the minimum amounts of checking yes to those 
are what your MEVs are roughly going to be. There you go. So how do you put that into process? You start, you, you can take a mesocycle. Mini cuts are actually great for this because you're supposed to be around MEV anyway. Um, you take a mesocycle and you maybe even just, let's say, three-week mesocycle to keep the example really simple. Four, sorry, three-week accumulation phase, one-week deload. In week one, you rough guess what your MEV is going to be. Then at the end of the week slash during the week, you check all those boxes that I talked about. Perception of, of volume, perception of work, uh, pumps that you're getting, delay onset soreness. And it, you analyze that first week. And the next week, you choose your set numbers. Right? You're still up in weight just a little bit, you know, trying to get a little stronger. You're up in weight just by a bit. And then you're going to retool your volumes, not in a progression, but in an adjustment based on how you felt last week. So, for example, if in biceps, you did like 12 sets and you got like a pretty good pump, you got pretty sore, it felt like a lot of work. Clearly, that's just more than your MEV. So you're going to drop biceps down to like 10 sets or something like that. You're going to repeat that this next week. You're going to see how 10 sets feel. Maybe 10 sets again is a bit much. Then you drop to eight in the third week. And then finally, after the third week of those eight sets of just a little bit more weight than using week one, week two, you're like, okay, this is like kind of like the minimum that I'm going to feel shit in. Now you're pretty close to finding your minimum effective volume. Now we're dealing with something. Another body part might go like going the other way. You know, you, you might do, uh, you know, uh, chest work and you do like eight sets of chest and you, just, you tick none of the boxes. Like, you just, I did not get a pump. I didn't get sore. That felt like no work at all. I didn't even feel like I'm training chest. Next week, week two, go up to, you know, what I say, eight sets to start, go up to 10, right? Or go up to nine or 10. At 10, maybe you feel something, maybe you don't. Then you go to 12 and you're like, shit, well, finally, I feel something. Remember, not a ton, just the first little bit. And then maybe, okay, my MEV for chest seems to be 12. And then, of week three should very, very closely reflect your actual MEV values. Week four, you can deload or like do a half deload because it's not that much fatigue from that. So like the first part of week four, you can still put weight on the bar and do the same number of MEV sets uh, as you did. And then the second half, you can just do cut everything by 50% volume and intensity. Then you'll be recovered and then you start your massing or whatever. And once you start that, you just plug the MEV weights right in from the last week three and then uh, start adding to them as, as you see fit based on your uh, recovery. Awesome. Yeah, no, that's really nice. And I think as I was listening to it, um, and because we spoke about it before, it became more and more obvious the kind of process to go through. And, uh, and thinking about it for myself in certain body parts, I know I felt like a pump from, even when I was doing my uh, resensitization phase, like my chest, I felt like, oh, that, just, that body part just gets pumped really easy. Um, not necessarily very sore, but I definitely felt a, it's more of a stimulus there than in other body parts for that amount of volume. So, um, no, it's really nice in that process, I guess, if the listeners are thinking about it and they're used to going from MEV to MRV, it's in a sense like a step back of a process and more of a up and down rather than just a linear upwards. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're just trying to find your MEV. Um, and that's, it's, it's not perfect because all of the things I listed are just proxies for muscle growth. They're not muscle growth themselves. Um, but I, I think if they're all missing the chances that you're growing, not that high, especially if you're being honest with yourself. Like, you know, if I was a, as a sports scientist, if someone's like, Hey, am I growing muscle right now? And I'm like, okay, are your workouts like plenty of volume? They'd be like, no, they don't feel like much volume at all. Okay. Are you getting pumps during the workouts? Like zero pumps. Are you getting sore at all? No. I'd be like, I mean, I'm just not going to bet that you're growing any muscle. But on the other hand, if they say, look, feels like per week, I'm doing plenty of volume. I'm getting, you know, a little bit of a pump and I'm getting a little bit sore after every workout or most workouts. I mean, it's probably growing, you know, other than nutritional factors and hormonal factors, et cetera, I think you're doing enough training wise to grow. So you just need to find that minimum amount that gives you all that shit. And then you're probably close to your MEV or as close as you realistically can. Like, it's kind of like who gives a shit if your MEV is seven sets per week, eight sets or nine sets per week. If you guess any of those, you're going to be in the ballpark. You're going to be wasting very little time training too much or training too little. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good point that you bring up because I think a lot of people think of like that these volume landmarks as set in stone numbers, but just cutting values, your massing values, these will change over time. And under certain circumstances, the same goes for all of the volume landmarks. Is that right? 
For sure. Absolutely. So a lot of times with massing, your MEV is actually lower. So, you know, if you had an MEV during mini cut, you may actually start your mass phase like one set per, per body part lower than that. But your MRV is going to be higher, so you'll have to climb to a higher value. Um, and then you're going to be, uh, you know, surprised that your mesocycle either has bigger jumps or takes longer. Both of them give you more hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and I think just like I mean, just like calories, you might have a maintenance range depending on various factors. Like all of these will have ranges depending on like exercise selection, nutritional inputs, that sort of thing. So no, brilliant. I really like that. Super, super, super. Cool. So uh, and I will plug the volume landmark book as well, or the the how much volume and well, just the book in general is really good. I'm glad it's had good feedback. So uh, we'll definitely have a link below for that book uh, because Thank Mike you very and much. James, I mean, you destroy these kind of concepts and everything. And if people are at all confused, there's so much detail in there. I mean, you're not going to be confused after you've read it a few times. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Awesome. So we'll get on to the next question was actually another discussion me and Mike had um, in that I saw kind of a paper and it was talking about consuming a substantial amount of fats post-workout didn't impact muscle glycogen replenishment. Um, but Mike then point, and I was kind of like, but we're going to avoid fats post-workout because of like slowing down digestion. And Mike pointed out that both groups had the same um, number of carbohydrates. So the big difference happens when we replace those extra fats with carbs for the other group. Um, so calories would be equated. And so my question then was to Mike, so would fats post-workout affect overall glycogen replenishment? And uh, Mike said he would delve into that a bit further on the podcast. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of the listeners are very interested here about this as well. Totally. Yeah. Huge public service announcement. The variables that you equate in a study critically determine what you can conclude from that study. I can't make this any bigger of a point. If you're comparing two workout styles, high frequency versus low frequency, let's say, but you do not equate for workout volume, you, you, there's so little you can conclude from that. Here's why. It is possible, let's say the high-frequency group gained more muscle. Okay, it's possible that frequency was responsible. But if you look into the data and the high-frequency group did one and a half times the workload, maybe it was just them doing more. But it's like, it's like um, almost uh, trying to see what satiates the appetite better, an apple or a hot dog. Well, you'll probably find that a hot dog does a better job. But hold on a sec. Satiates appetite within the context of a diet well if you program if you're doing a high fym you program a hot dog into that motherfucker there goes a quarter of your day's calories right there so the real question is how many apples do we need to eat to get to the calorie levels of a hot dog because that's the most real world comparison because we already know that calories are the most important factor in satiation you know you really want to get full and you're not dieting you go get a fucking ton of calories right you go to nando's or some shit like that and you just eat up everything but that's not news to anybody and that's just not what we're curious about so we have to make sure to equate the variables we know are powerful we know are impactful and we know are uninteresting to us at that time to study because there's tons of interesting stuff about volume and hypertrophy we just kind of know that volume really impacts hypertrophy already so anything we're going to have to say about other variables we at least got to equate volume right? And ideally equate all the more powerful variables. So when, you know, studies, (laughs) some studies just seem to be designed. It's hard to tell what part of it is scientific negligence and what part is just we wanted to get results like this and what part of it is just, you know, my undergrad wrote up the study, we got the funding for it. Let's just put out a study so I can get more publications, unfortunately. Um, So um, you know, a study that says, okay, well, you can eat a bunch of fats and um, it doesn't interfere with carb loading. I mean, if it's not calorie equated, I really just don't know what claim is really being made. Um, and here's the thing. If you are in the context of needing to load as much carbohydrate as possible, needing to load as much glycogen as possible, you're in an environment where you don't have the infinite amount of carbs you want but you have plenty of fats and some carbs, it is probably your job to eat as much food as humanly possible. 
because the fats will be used to provide your body with energy and will go and occupy fat stores while the carbs untouched will basically just all go to glycogen. So your fats have actually worked for you in giving you the stuff that carbs would have been chipped away from. So if you consume 200 grams of fat and 300 grams of carbs, that's going to load a lot of glycogen, probably like 300 grams of carbs worth of glycogen because the fats do everything else. On the other hand, if you just consume 300 grams of carbs and no fats, maybe 150 grams, and I'm just giving an example, maybe 150 grams of that is going to go to straight up just daily needs. And then how much is loaded to glycogen? So maybe only 150 grams of those carbs end up going to glycogen. That sucks, right? So someone can say, oh, look, high-carb dieting is stupid, but here's the real deal. We have to equate the most pertinent variable. We have to equate calories. Now, how many, how many grams of carbohydrate are we talking about difference if we can equate calories? Now we're talking 300 grams of carbs versus like 700 plus grams of carbs. Well, which one do you think is going to uh, load glycogen better? Well, I mean, the real question is how much glycogen is there to load? If you're dealing with a 110-pound female who did one set of curls, 300 and 700 are going to load the same amount of glycogen, right? This is the top out stores, you know, after the first 50 grams. But if you're talking about athletes that have ridden cycling to exhaustion or done full body workouts are really depleted, 700 is going to replete them better. And then again, we're back to making non-controversial statements like more carbs repletes better. So when we look at this question of fats versus carbs, we have to pose the question properly because what you don't want is to read a research. Well, I don't want, I hate that when this happens to me and it's happened all the time. You read a research study, you say, oh, fats replenish carbs just as well as carbs do pretty much. And then somebody zings your ass. I hate getting zinged when they're like, but what if they equated calories and you just had more carbs and less fats? You're like, God damn it. I didn't think of that shit. Fuck. And then you feel stupid. So it's one of those situations where if you really want to ask the question of how do I maximize my glycogen the best, it is in your interest to eat some amount of protein because you have to. And most of the rest of the calories outside of the physiological needs for hormones, et cetera, for fats to come from carbs, plain and simple. And just because you can get away with loading glycogen by eating a bunch of fats, the real question isn't what if we take those fats away? The real question is, can we replace them with carbs? And now you got uh, uh, something that makes sense again. Mm -hmm. Let me know what you think about that. No, yeah, no, it's really well explained. And I guess the only other question I'd have, and I, you may have kind of covered it in what you were saying, is say you had two situations where it was exactly the same diet. One person was on their 500 grams of carbs a day, 40 grams of fat. The other person's exactly the same. And the person A consumed kind of 200 grams of carbs with 20 grams of fat or 50 grams of like all his fat, basically, say, uh, versus the other guy consuming his carbs, 200 grams of carbs, same time, and then left his fats till the evening. Um, there would be a replenishment difference within those two populations, or would that, because um, of the long time effect, would that not matter? Or, yeah, what would happen in that scenario? Steve, you, you cut out for a little bit of that. So we're talking about two two individuals, right? Or one person is eating, they're eating the same amount of carbs and fats, they're just timing them differently? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, completely. So one person is having it with their post-workout meal, uh, the other person's leaving that one almost just carbs and, the other, and leaving their fats to later in the day. Yeah, there's going to be a smaller difference, but there is going to be a difference. The person who has most of the carbohydrates during the glycogen loading sensitive period is probably going to, at the end of the day, have a little bit more glycogen loaded. Absolutely. But, but it's not going to be by much. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, we will get on to um, the next question, which is, I don't know if you've actually heard of something called, and it's popped up into my news feed, um, the vertical diet. Um, I've definitely heard kind of different people using a similar uh, way of thinking and they haven't called it this um, but I think it was kind of popularized by Stan Stan Efferding um, have you heard of it Mike mm -mm. so it's pretty much he was talking about um, what he does is he recommends a narrow nutrient-dense food selection to optimize digestion um, and therefore somehow optimize metabolic rate um and i then was just it just made me think is there any way you can kind of optimize your food composition for hypertrophy um is that even a thing 
have you got any thoughts on that kind of having a narrow range of foods that are high quality um kind of focusing on those rather than having a wide variety of kind of sources so like carbohydrates you might just focus on having potatoes oats and rice and that's all you have versus someone who's switching out in and out different carbohydrate sources all the time is there any logic to your body getting very good at digesting certain nutrients and that being better for you is the claim that it increases your metabolic rate I believe that is the kind of the hope that you kind of digest these foods better. And so you can take on more and more and more. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so the, the, the quality of your digestion does not meaningfully impact your metabolic rate at all. So unless you're really hypocaloric because you're digesting barely nothing, in which case your shit will look like your food. Um, you have a serious digestive problem. You need to go to the doctor. Um, it's not some shit. I mean, how often do you shit out just your fucking hot dog in, hot dog out? Right. <laughs> right? Then you're really hypocaloric because you're absorbing close to dick and then your metabolism will start to fall off for sure. But, um, you know, your metabolic rate will be, if you're getting a eucaloric or isocaloric diet, anyway, you're meeting your needs. Anything after that doesn't really impact your metabolic rate much unless you're trying to eat a shitload of food and then the more food you digest, the higher metabolic rate will be. But then that's kind of a bad thing because you, you just have to outrun your metabolism all the time. Um, so I'm not really sure what the, the, the goal there is uh, with the metabolic rate and digestion. It's kind of like whichever way you point the digestion, metabolic rate ends up being opposite of what we want <laughs> instead of the way we actually want it. Um, so the metabolic rate stuff, meh. Um, if you eat, you know, a very controlled diet with a lot of, uh, with, with very high limitations on the composition of your foods, you end up uh, putting yourself needlessly at risk for very minor nutrient deficiencies that can have very minor, small, but cumulative health effects. Um, I think most of the evidence-based community has, uh, in nutrition has gone to promoting as varied of a diet as you can tolerate because you get all kinds of goodies from all over the place and also doesn't bore you to death. Um, the thing about this kind of like diet with three or four foods, it's just going to shit a lot of people out the back end. Most people just won't be able to do it. Um, if um, I have gotten us into some kind of similar situation with this in the last little bit of massing, because as I think the entire world now knows, I've been experimenting with high carb massing. It's been awesome. Broderick Chavez is a genius, well, evil genius, actually, um, as his brand name um, implies. So um, the thing with high carb massing is that, especially as you get really big, you know, over 240, 250, 260, the amount of food that is required for you to eat is what, again, Broderick has called oppressive, <laughs> right? Um, and then a lot of foods just don't fit your diet anymore because there's no way to jam them in. Um, I've been getting a lot of shit on Instagram lately, <laughs> funny standalone statement um, <laughs> of like, Dr. Mike, you're posting pictures of your food. Where are your veggies? I eat veggies most of the year, but during the very peaks of my massing periods, which is what's been happening for the last little while, I don't eat very many veggies. Um, I can't fit them in. <laughs> you have no idea what it's like to stare down the third meal of the day, which has 200 grams of carbs in it, and it's white rice. And people are like, why don't you have broccoli and asparagus? Are you out of your fucking mind? Like, it'll just <laughs> stop right in my stomach. I'll get 80 grams of carbs and I'll start vomiting everywhere. And that'll be that. So you'll notice that a lot of bodybuilders, IFB pros, et cetera, they post their meals. Just, just There's a little bit of veggies, which I like to have a little bit with all of my foods. And I usually do. An amount shrinks like crazy. And there's a bunch of other, it goes down to food composition. Like, can I smash 100 grams of white rice, 200 grams of carbs, white rice? Yeah. Can I smash that with brown rice? Uh, that's harder. Whole wheat pasta? Go fuck yourself. There's just no way that's going down. Oatmeal? You're going to be fucking crazy. Right? I will shit blood if I eat that much oatmeal, especially on a daily basis. So you end up fine-tuning the foods you eat just to make them foods that are the most hyper-palatable and the ones that just take up the least room in your stomach and are digestible at very, very high quantities, which is why a lot of times you, know, you see bodybuilders really zoning in on just a couple of foods because they're the ones 
And it's a lot of times a very personal thing. It's just whatever works best with your feelings and your digestive system that you can smash. Like some people can smash pasta all day long. Some people can smash rice all day long. But some of those groups don't interchange. Some people that love pasta hate rice and vice versa. They just can't eat a lot of it. So in those special massing circumstances, a lot of times, yeah, you do have to choose food composition. But I would say as advice applied arbitrarily to individuals between 150 to 200 pounds, um, I think needlessly restricting your food intake like that offers, as far as I'm aware, maybe I've just got it wrong, um, no advantages whatsoever and comes with some definite costs in terms of nutrient density and uh, nutrient variation, which is really good. Um, there are two potential problems from eating the same kinds of foods. They're both very unlikely, or rather of very small magnitude, but they're both problems. One problem is because you don't eat other foods, you consistently undereat some nutrients. And also because you eat the same foods all the time, especially if you're massing, you might be overeating some nutrients or some uh, some toxins, or sorry to use that term, but in that case, they're actually real. And you know, toxins are all dose dependent, but if you eat only oatmeal every single day, 600 grams, 600 grams, 600 grams. You just happen to have a particular digestive system. Your oatmeal is sourced from some kind of factory that adds a little bit of something to it. All of a sudden, you know, you may experience 20 years down the line an increase in cancer rates by 3% or some shit. So I'm very much keeping this in context. But it's just like, why even put yourself at that tiny little bit of extra risk when you can vary your sources and run into neither a nutrient deficiency risk nor a nutrient or contaminant excess risk? It's like... um. If you eat only sushi all the time, you're likely to get mercury poisoning at some point. You just are. It's only sushi is insane. Sushi is delicious, but why only eat that shit? Trade off everything. Variation is really, really good for dieting, and that's been shown over and over again. <laughs> no, that's great. And, yeah, I think in general the recommendation within, I mean, everyone listening will know kind of Alan Aragon's general rule of kind of 80% wholesome, great, nutritious foods and 20% kind of what have you. Um, and if you're hitting that, that's as far as you really need to go and then go by preference. Is that kind of where you would go by? Totally. But if you really wanted to maximize your health, um, that comes close to maximizing. But a real maximization means that that 80% should be varied. You, and yeah. it doesn't mean varied every day. You can have a whole week where you eat oatmeal but the, only. But the next week, try some white rice. The week after that, try some quinoa. A variety is almost always good for health. You can do this with protein sources, veggie sources, fruit sources, grain sources, everything. Variation is good. Um, art, arbitrarily, artificially reducing your variation in eating you know, would have to have some very, very big research or logic behind it. I see not a whole lot of either one, but as usual, I can very well be super wrong and have built my empire of being Dr. Mike on, on, on nothing except for lies, Steve, which I actually think is likely. <laughs> Well, I hope not. Otherwise, uh, I've helped spread thousands of lies to our. You should feel very ashamed. <laughs> um, I guess the only other point was is there any kind of. I always thought of human digestion as being a pretty resilient thing and pretty good and we're good at digesting a variety of foods. Is there any logic to keeping to a narrow selection so you get better at digesting certain foods? Yeah, because you make the narrow selection of foods you digest very well. That has to be a personalized selective process. And that's only relevant when you're blasting hypercaloric like you won't believe. Yeah. Like that's really only when digestion becomes an issue. Do you think you have problems digesting shit on a hypocaloric diet? You must be out of your mind. Your body will take every fucking gram of nutrient out of everything. On a eucaloric diet, it's really not an issue. So it's one of the situations where if you're blasting hypercaloric, yes, choose the foods that make you have the least digestive discomfort, that fill you up the least, that make you have good, solid quality shits. Um, if any of those are wrong, choose foods that are better. Right. But outside of that very particular circumstance, no, I don't think there's ever a problem with digestion unless there's a medical concern. If you have celiac disease, yeah, you're going to have some problems. Uh, if you have Crohn's disease, yeah, you're going to have some serious problems. So those are real medical issues for medical doctors to talk about. Um, Digestion is one of those things that's also, man, this is a huge myth. I've ranted about it at least. I, think, I feel like I have to repeat myth rants every year, and I don't think anyone's yeah. going to have a problem with it because there's always new people coming into fitness and being like, oh, I thought, you know, um, digestion problems as a pathway to obesity is just something that just 
breaks the brain. Like, well, the reason you're getting fatter is because you're not digesting your food. You fucking draw me a diagram of how that works. How the fuck is the food getting into me and making me fat, motherfucker? If you couldn't digest anything, you would never gain weight. You would die of starvation. Fuck. And people say shit like that all the time. Like, you're just going to boost your metabolism if you digest more. It's like, really? Okay. Like, is that going to make me leaner because I digest more and food goes in more? They're like, yeah. Like, okay, fuck it. I just haven't... I don't know what to say about that. It just makes no fucking goddamn sense at all. It's like the word actually it's worse than um, eating more fat causes you to burn more fat. That kind of also true. (laughs) Just happen to be burning the fat you're eating. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's cool, cool hobby or whatever. Awesome. Well, uh, that was really well covered. And the next thing I'm going to get onto, and um, we may not actually uh, get onto any of the the meat and potato questions, but I know these have been particularly sent through and um, really wanted addressing were some just recent critiques that have come out um, on MRV. Um, and it was essentially kind of talking about the is the risk worth the reward and um if i list off these kind of two bullet points and then let mike kind of address them um it was um just saying someone would rather um, see someone stay at a volume that would produce gains in the long term without any risk of injury or overtraining um and trying to arbitrarily reach a breaking point um and then another kind of question of is doing a ton of volume- oh go for it is that okay? Yeah, totally. So, this, uh, so the, the critique here is that um, maybe we should rather stay at a volume that would produce gains um, without uh, reaching a breaking point. Uh, be criti- I can criticize that on several levels. This is a good criticism. Um, I can criticize that criticism on several levels. First of all, it's an interesting statement when you give thought to the nature of the overload principle. It is such an interesting thought that it is mutually contradictory. It is internally contradictory. Here's why. You replace volume with intensity and see if that makes any goddamn sense. So you see someone squatting 405 for sets of 10, and you're like, dude, that's pretty like high risk. And they're like, I know. Like, why don't you just stay at 225 and just never go above that? We're like, well, I won't fucking grow because I can't fucking grow if I don't train heavier progressively over time. And you're like, yeah, but it's high risk of injury. You're like, ah, uh, dude, you know what I mean? So first of all, you can just replace that with intensity. Um, Between you and I, we know who made this critique. That individual is a very big fan of getting as strong as possible for sets of, you know, 10 or so. And that is supposed to be the biggest route by which to gain muscle. I'll tell you what puts you at a really high risk of injury. Using the most weights you can for sets of 10 versus training two reps away from failure, three reps away from failure with lighter weights, higher reps with very high volumes. It's not even close. Um, when I squatted 500 pounds for 10 reps, which is on YouTube, by the way, um, thank God I didn't fucking die. <laughs> and uh, ever since then, people have asked me, like, when are you going to squat more? I mean, maybe never, because it's just not worth it to me to put that much force through my fucking tendons. I'll just do more leg presses and do more high bar squatting with, you know, on a Smith machine or something, still super deep, still really high volumes. Still do regular squatting, but after leg pressures or hack squats so I can get really good volumes without stressing the tissues that much. So that same critique can be leveled against intensity. And because the individual that made this doesn't believe it about intensity, I'm inclined to think they don't believe it about volume either because the relationships are identical as far as injury risk is concerned, maybe even with intensity being more likely to get you hurt. And when you think about it, who gets hurt more, Steve? Powerlifters at the very top or bodybuilders at the very top? Powerlifters get hurt all the time. Like, it's just a matter of time before you get hurt as a powerlifter. They're doing very low volumes most of the time. Bodybuilders do crazy volumes. They don't get hurt all that often because you don't get hurt curling a fucking 30-pound dumbbell, you know what I mean, when you're a 280-pound man. doesn't matter how many reps you do. doesn't matter how reach you are. You're not going to get hurt. You're just going to feel like shit for a while. Your muscles aren't going to grow. To the second point, which is a perfect segue. Um, you're not testing the limits of when you get hurt. Okay, when you hit your MRV, your chances of getting hurt start to go up if you hang around at it or above it for a long time. You're not supposed to do that. That's a bad idea. You get to your MRV, your chances of getting hurt go up just a little bit, and then you back off, recycle, and go through the process of going from minimum effective volume all the way to MRV again. That's it. So we're not testing, you know, uh, the waters here to see if we can get hurt. It's it, it, We have to get up through that level in order to get the best gains, which brings me to my third and final point on this matter. 
how are we supposed to present overloads and, and, and if we are capping ourselves at a certain particular arbitrary volume that's good enough? So like, let's say your MRV is 20 sets per body part per week and your minimum effective volume is 10. Are we supposed to go to 15, deload, and go back to 10, and go back to 15, deload, go back to 10, go to 15? There's an argument for that, but geez, that sounds like we're missing a whole lot of growth. Like, how long would those mesocycles even last, right? And if you say, well, hold up, but if you don't up the volume that much through the mesocycle, you can up intensity more. Back to the intensity argument of you getting hurt just by getting too strong. That's it. So there's no way out of this process of pushing the body to its limits as far as recovery is concerned, which is not the same thing as literal structural limits at which you will die. Okay, you just start to underperform, actually, and in this first week you underperform, you deload and, and then repeat and all is well. Um, uh, the, uh, the last, I guess, super last point I'll make is that in beginners and intermediates, you don't have to go to MRV. From MEV to MRV, you can stop short and get really, really good gains, and your technique gets better because you're not pushing it all the time, uh, and you're just better for your long-term development, which is something we state directly in the volume book, that for beginners to beginning intermediates, you should, probably shouldn't go to your MRV every cycle. You probably shouldn't go to your MRV at all. You start at minimum effective volume, go up about halfway to two-thirds, and then recycle again. Like As soon as you look str like struggly with your weights, your coach deloads you and recycles the weights. You're like, oh, come on, coach. You could have gone up for two weeks. Yes, but we're trying to keep you healthy for the long term. Here's the thing. For high-level individuals, their MEV to MRV window is so small. As soon as they had MEV, they're close to MRV anyway. That's like three sets away. Your MEV might be 17 sets, and your MRV might be 20 sets. Because nothing short of disruption grows you when you're advanced. I would love to have that debate with anybody who's interested in having it. If you found a way to train without really challenging the physiology that gets advanced people to grow, you haven't. I'm sure if you have, I'd love to hear about it, but I'm just joking because there is no such thing, right? So at some point, for beginners, yeah, you don't have to go all the way to MRV. Totally agree. But for intermediate, advanced, and advanced individuals, you've got no choice. Because otherwise, just dick happens. And I think, well, just off the off my top of my head is I think there are quite a lot of individuals who they have maybe programs that are more like not going through the volume landmarks and more consistent with volume and they never really push the bounds that much. And then there are a lot of people who don't actually then advance to those advanced levels. And this could be an element within everything that could be holding them back and why you don't see a lot of large individuals. And this, I mean, when people start training like this more and more, we might see more people getting to those more advanced. Yeah. Stages. So basically you're saying it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, well, I don't go too hard because I don't want to get, you know, fucked up, but then it keeps them from getting jacked. And they're like, well, steroids is the only reason anyone else has ever gotten jacked. They're like, sweet, go back to that. Uh, that's possible. That's possible. Um, I don't think it's actually that common because I think at least half of those people still cycle through intensities. Mm -hmm. And remember, as intensity goes up, if you equate volume, your maximum recoverable volume falls, right? So you don't have to meet it with volume. You can just meet it with intensity and it'll fall to meet you. So like if you start doing 10 sets per body part per week and you increase weight on the bar all the time because you're like, no, 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 too much volume is bad. It's sooner or later you're lifting such heavy weights that your MRV is 10 sets per week for those weight ranges. And then you're back to the same level of overload, the same level of injury risk. I would say higher. I would say because here's another thing. Fuck, man, there's so much to this. Um, it's really, I think, just a very one-sided argument at the end of it. In my favor, of course. <laughs> so it's been shown so far pretty robustly that there is a broad spectrum of volumes that equates largely to the same growth among, uh, uh, sorry, uh, high volumes create um, a, a lot of uh, the same growth in a broad spectrum of intensities. Like if you're lifting over 30% of your owner max and coming close to failure, um, you're probably growing just as much muscle if you lift at 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, right? And 90, you'll never survive anyway, but you know, we just threw it in there. So if intensity isn't a huge factor in hypertrophy, um, and if volume is the big factor, doesn't it pay more to push the volume side than it does the intensity side from an injury risk perspective? I mean, if I had to pick which one gets you hurt more, I'd say heavier weights hurt you more than super high volumes. So if you're going to pick one of those, fuck, man. Like if someone's like, all right, you either got like, you know, 20 sets 
of, of, of 20 reps with 225 on the bar on the squad, or you've got like, you know, eight sets this week of 545 for six, which one do you think is going to get you hurt? I'm like, 225 in the squat would have to get me hurt through some miracle of science. Like some shit would just have to like be on a fucking string already to get me hurt. Right. Like I can shoulder press 225. I can overhead tricep extend to There's no way it's going to hurt me in the squat. But 545, man, you ever see 545 load up on a squat rack? The shit bends the bar. You're like, man, it's hurting the bar. <laughs> the bar is made of metal. <laughs> what the fuck am I going to do about this? Right. One little schmig, little schmag, wrong way. Zigbury should have zagged. And all of a sudden, you know, your fucking knees through the mirror and your ankles through the back mirror and you have no idea what happens. So, uh, again, it's very, very difficult to square those concepts. Like if we're really playing the risk averse card, we should definitely just try not to get much stronger. Um, and then we're, uh, we're back, uh, in, in back. It's a problem. And, and, and again, going back to, I think, I don't th- I think I finished this progressive overload demands. You add more. That's how we get to MRV. We get to MRV because adding anything above MRV is no longer good, but adding up to it is good. If you're really trying to stay away from MRV, you're going to thwart your progressive overload process somehow. We don't want to go to MRV and then just train there. That's a misunderstanding of the concept. And perhaps earlier in my description of the concept years ago, I was unclear about this. Now I'm quite clear about this, that you should start at minimum effective volume, milk as much gains as you can out of that and slowly rise up over the metacycle automatically we're not trying to go to rmrv we're simply presenting an overload relative to the last microcycle you will end up at your mrv and because you're doing good technique because there's some benefit of overreaching especially for advanced individuals and because it can extend the length of our mesocycle and improve our uh accumulation to deload ratios i think it's okay to get at least close to mrv now listen am i huge on intermediates even going all the way to mrv every mesocycle no just get close, right? Because otherwise, yes, you are playing it safe, but playing it safe is only effective for so long. At some point, you can't play it safe anymore. There's analogy in every sport to this. If you want to be the best jujitsu grappler, you can be, at some point, you're going to have to fight the guys that are the best in the world. They will hurt you. They will try to hurt you. That's what they're trying to do. But there's no way around it. You're like, how can I become the best by never training hard with anyone? There's just no answer to that. The answer is you're not going like, but it's, but it's, to. But it's injury risk to, to fight the best, like, yeah, sports risky if you want to be the best. I don't know a single athlete that's gotten anywhere good without taking calculated risks. Mm-hmm. And I think, well, part of the misunderstanding is I think people see MRV as kind of the thing that you're pushing people to be training at, whereas actually it's the middle sweet spot between MEV and the MRV, which is where you're like, that's where you should be spending the majority of your time. And when we're talking about these, these concepts, the maximal adaptive volume doesn't come up that much, but that is where you're hanging out or you want to be hanging out the majority of the time. Absolutely. It's just impossible to hang out there all the time because it's a floating value. I think a lot of these interpretations of MRV are saying, no, but MAV is better. Oh, I know, but you can't be at MAV, but for one microcycle technically speaking, because as soon as you're at MEV or whatever number you think MEV is, you presented that overload, your body has adapted. Now that number's higher next week. Like if 16 sets with that golden fucking sweet spot to get you the most growth with the least fatigue, what is that sweet spot next? Well, sweet spot 17, 18 sets next because you're already used to 16 sets because your body adapts to shit. I wish progressive overload was not a thing, but it just fucking happens to be a thing. Awesome. Cool. Um, and I don't know if we want to get to the second sure. kind of comment that was made um, saying, uh, is doing a ton of volume and risky injury worth the potential benefits of overreaching? And I guess you kind of touched on that a little bit, saying how for those newer individuals, uh, intermediate individuals, maybe not, um, yeah. but for more advanced than it may well be. Absolutely. Yeah. But just stick to that as the answer. Um, and it's not a ton of volume. It's the most volume you can recover from. Um, that's not done, but for once per mesocycle. Um, and the alternative does not exist. There is an alternative if you want to grow. Maybe the alternative is to use a whole lot of weight or come really close to failure. That's not going to get you hurt. Sure, well, just the same way. So. I don't, uh, any of these critiques can be applied to intensity and probably even more so. And then we're back to the fundamental logic of training. Training is about presenting an overload. It is about homeostatic disruption. It's about challenging the system. 
There is no way to grow long-term without occasionally challenging the system a lot. And the only reason we occasionally challenge the system a lot is because everything else we have already tried, <laughs> right? And there's no way to present a bigger overload. You present a superlative overload and then you deal it. Does everyone need that? No, beginners probably don't. They can probably grow really well and probably better served by never going to MRV. Intermediates should probably go to MRV every now and again. Advanced have no choice but to go to MRV only within a couple of sets of MRV with a volume. Whatever intensity ranges they choose or failure proximities is where they're going to get their gains. Because remember, you can put an, an advanced individual through a really tough workout, but if it is anything but superlative, it simply won't cause them to grow. Um, it's one of the reasons people take performance enhancing substances at a high level is because the workouts require to get them better. You need PEDs to do those workouts and to recover from them. <laughs> so it's just, uh, it all makes sense in the grand scheme. I don't like it any bit more than anybody else does. Um, but um, that's just how it has to be. And I don't know if this is kind of a bit of a side tangent, but related. You've spoken about really advanced individuals when their uh, minimum effective volume and their maximum recoverable volume are so close that they may not even be able to progress much with set numbers. And in fact, actually, they just increase via intensity. Intensity, yeah, or ma manipulate repetitions. Maybe they'll add a rep every other cycle and mm -hmm. add a two and a half pounds to the bar or something like that. We're talking about very minimum stuff. Tell me how close they are to their MRV if there's the same set number with just less intensity and more intensity. That's you're at you're fucking damn near your MRV in microcycle one because nothing, anything short of that is junk volume to you. Like uh, when you're scratching the top five percent of your genetic limits, anything. In the 95% challenge range, it just doesn't hit you up. It just it won't milk those gains. Your body becomes very resistant at gaining, and nothing but superlative will do. And superlative, by definition, is close to MRV, whichever way you slice it. And um, are you at that level yet, Mike? <laughs> I don't think so, to be completely honest. Um, so I can still progress in, in volume pretty well, but I am to the point where I might add like four sets. Um, per body part per week through my progression where a lot of individuals I, I know personally can add six sets, can add eight sets. There's just no way I'm adding eight sets at this point. Um, my minimum effective volumes are high enough and my MRVs are low enough because of the intensities I'm using uh, and, and just how much muscle I have and how much it takes to recover that muscle that um, my progressions are no longer as exotic as they once used to be. Um, it's just the way the cookie crumbles. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, perfect. Um, and I think, do we have time for maybe one question yeah. from kind of our, and we have tons, so we will eventually, we've got a whole, we've got years of the podcast to go forward, so we, we'll get <laughs> to these questions eventually. Um, so Troy Schultz, um, I think that's how I pronounce his name, but that's how I'm pronouncing it anyway, um, has asked, how does the importance of meal frequency vary between the different phases of dieting? So maintenance versus massing versus cutting. Um, he also said, thanks for all the great content. So you're welcome for all the great content. Thank you for tuning in. Um, I think maintenance just gives you the most leeway. So meal frequency is the least important during maintenance. Like if you have at least three meals a day on maintenance and you get enough protein, you're probably good to go and you won't lose any muscle. Once you've built some good muscle, losing it's pretty hard. You got to go out of your way to do it. For massing, um, you know, there's the practical and the physiological side. The physiological side is that you may need multiple pulses of protein feedings to maximize the total amount of muscle grown. And the practical side is that you just three meals just may not, you may not be able to eat that much in one sitting to have a low meal frequency. Like some guy I know said he masked on, on intermittent fasting. And I was like, fuck you. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. Nobody cares. You just, you know, I ran a marathon with a broken foot. Like, why would you do that? I don't know. <laughs> so um, it's just needlessly difficult. So from those two reasons, I think that the meal frequency should be a little bit higher on massing. On a fat loss phase, you definitely want to keep protein titrated in and maximize as much anabolism as you can to counter the catabolism that's happening, multiple protein feedings throughout the day. 
Um, and also you're going to want to, to time your carbohydrates really well to training, especially pre-training and definitely post-training to get as much of them to glycogen and as little of them to anything else because you're now so short on glycogen and so short on training energy. So that again creates a need for particular timing. So I would say in my analysis, fat loss is probably the most important phase in which to time. Muscle gain is very, very close, um, still up there. And then maintenance is like when you can do fuck all three meals a day and nothing much matters. Perfect. And I think, I mean, from what I've understood from yourselves and the, the, the RP diet is most of your meal frequency kind of priorities are hit by spreading out your protein. Um, and then kind of carbohydrates come after that and then fats are of lesser importance. And um, totally. Yeah. If you're eating four to six, protein evenly spaced evenly uh, titrated even amounts protein feedings per day there's not a whole lot of, of meal frequency left <laughs> uh nutrient timing just is basically that and just a couple other bells and whistles carb timing matters a little bit but after that it's really a minor point so i think a lot of people you know they think you know oh i need to i want to do this kind of timing timing super restrictive i hate eating blah 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 like my one big piece of advice for people who want to do intermittent fasting is like, look, uh, wake up in the morning, drink just like 50 grams of casein protein and then bring a shake of 50 grams of casein protein with you for the middle of the day. You get those two protein pulses and then you eat a big meal at night or whatever. You're just so much better for muscle retention than just not eating anything and then eating once at night. Mm -hmm. So just take care of those protein pulses and then you don't have to eat these big, perfect carb laden meals. Just at least get some protein every four to fucking six hours. And the research and the physiological rationale on that is really clear. Also, nobody jacked has ever violated that and got away with it. So except for that one guy, what's his name? Uh, oh, Martin Burkham is that? No, well, yeah, so he can put him in there too. No, the new, the new guy, the Batman of fitness. Um, fuck. He's got like, he inherited a lot of money from his parents for shit like that. Uh, Gallagher. Um, yeah, Gregory yeah, O'Gallagher or some shit. Yeah, he's a fucking monster, bro. I'm just kidding. I can't even say that. that <laughs> but uh, yeah, his, uh, I like his ads, man. They're really like professionally done videos and shit of him like feasting with these hot ass friends you know what i'm saying fuck all this dining shit i want to talk to your friends man i'm fucking <laughs> male female i'm into whatever i want to want to be friends with your friends dog that, that's what i want so steve we don't have uh, friends that's our problem i actually don't i don't have enough friends and you know why friend mike yeah, well you're my only friend steve and um it's because of our high meal frequencies. We just literally don't have time <laughs> for friends. People calling us up like, hey, you want to hang out? We're like, sorry, meal number 18. You know, that's it. <laughs> and actually, on the point of um, Gregor Gallagher, I, I think I've, I, I don't know if I quoted his name, but I think a lot of people need to realize that he probably didn't get into that shape via a lot of the practices he's now talking about in that. I know in these videos, he like basically doesn't work out and basically just eats once a day and drinks coffee. Um, I, I might have been summarizing <laughs> that a bit summary. too <laughs> No, that's like pretty much true. I think he works out like three or four times a week or something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, you can get, if you have pretty decent genetics, you can get into his shape doing that. Um, I just found that, you know, if you want pretty decent results and you have decent genetics, you can just get away with what he's doing just fine. Um, a lot of people who get into this game don't want decent results. Like, let's be honest. Most people just want to look like Jared feather and, and you don't, you're not going to look like Jared feather unless you do all the shit you can. I uh, can imagine Jared feather walking into Gregor Gallagher's gym. Gregor Gallagher is going to want to look like Jared feather. You know, Holy fuck. What the hell happened to that guy's arms? And what the fuck happened to the rest of that guy? Like that is just, you know, physique engineering. You know what I mean? That's not like, Oh, I just kind of boops. Here I am. Um, and the other thing, like in, in the rest of it, I mean, there's a fine, I think it's a fine effective program. The only thing I don't like is, is uh, internally contradictory uh, claims such as you only get to eat once a day. It's a feast though. 
but there's no restrictions. I'm like, what the fuck? Not eating during the day is what a hell of a restriction. What are you talking about? Like, you wake up, you're like, I want waffles. Nope, can't. Here's some coffee. You're like, fine. And like, uh, I want lunch. Nope, can't. Fuck you. You're like, I want dinner. Ah, nope, you got 30 minutes left. Okay, now go ahead. Like, this is as restrictive as I can think. So it's just funny when people are like, no more restrictions. Anytime someone says that in dieting, they're freaking lying or misinterpreting their own shit. Like at RP, while I'm at it, you know, we'll never say no restrictions. Are you fucking kidding me? We're like, here's a restrictive plan to get your dumb ass into shape. We're not going to be like, here's no restrictions because you clearly are fine just not restricting yourself on your own. That's why you hired us, you know? Yeah, it's exactly along the same lines of like hitting specific macros and being like, uh, oh, I'm not restricted at all. It's I'm like, free. Oh. <laughs> You're quite restricted by <laughs> 210 grams of protein. Or exactly. There's three numbers run your life, but no big deal. You're free. It's like you're free within the walls of the jail. Like you can go anywhere. Just, just don't leave the jail. Or you get shot. <laughs> so. And I don't think, I mean, like you already pointed out, you need some sort of restriction, some bounds to get results. Um, but it's just the fact that people kind of take it a step too far and they say they're completely free when obviously it's not the case. <laughs> I wish it was, man. You just have to take boatloads of drugs and die early. And then you do have freedom to die early from boatloads <laughs> of drugs. Awesome. Um, well, I don't want to keep you too long because we've gone for about an hour, Mike. Um, and I think we've covered some really, really important topics. And I think the audience will love this. Um, as always, I want to say thank you. Um, and if people do want to ask questions, there's going to be a link below. So you can join the revivestronger.com Facebook group, which is where all the questions get submitted. And we always get, well, I mean, the actual, I'd have you in there, Mike, in that group, but I think you'd get bombarded with questions because we're getting questions day, like five questions daily, all relating to the scientific principles, um, talking about recovery, training, all of that sort of thing. And it's amazing to see. Um, Sounds great. No, it's really good. It's exploded recently. So if people want to join that community, there's some really smart people in there who've been to the London seminar, people from there and people from RP Plus are in there as well. Um, so yeah, it's great to see all of those people coming in. And so yeah, thank you, Mike. Very cool. Thank you, Steve. Cheers, guys. Take care. And we'll talk to you soon.